that you guys have a seat. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's always on joy uh, gathering each, each week. And every week when we, when we get together, I, I usually begin by saying, and this week we're going to be in, and I'll tell you the, the, the Bible passage. In fact, I'll go ahead and say one. Uh, this week, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 21 uh, at some point. I'm going to spend a, a good bit in Luke 21. Uh, but this is a little bit of a different uh, message than usual, because usually uh, I'm going to teach a passage out of the Bible um, and then we're going to figure out how to apply that one passage, and, and we're, we're going to look at different angles of it and just really try to, try to grow from, from the one passage. But every week, I, I grab my Bible, my copy of the Bible, and I just, I just teach out of it. And, and I never ask you, hey, do you believe that this thing is worth following? Have you ever thought about that? I'm, I'm sure you have. If, if you've watched TikTok or YouTube or you just have like a, a pesky teenager in your life, there's, there's somebody that you know of that is just like, hey, that's great you want to teach out of that, but how do you even know that this thing is worth trusting? Like, don't, don't you know, like, uh, people, people put the Bible together to keep, you know, the Christians in power during the fourth and fifth centuries? Don't you know about Constantine? Constantine? Don't you know these things? And, and what, what ends up happening is that there's this entire conversation thread. Tell, tell me I'm not the only one who hears this. There's this entire conversation thread of let's undermine the foundation of this book, uh, and, then, and then we move on from there. There's, there's got to be, every now and then, there's got to be a conversation it's like, why the Bible? Why do we trust this thing? What, where does it come from? You know, what isn't? So what I wanted to do is spend the next 30 minutes and just kind of look at this thing that we call a Bible and, and ask some questions of it. One, what is the Bible? And, and then two, like, can, can I trust the Bible? And uh, three, like, okay, now if, if, if I can trust the Bible, how do, I, how do I read and how do I study the Bible? So we're going to be bouncing around quite a bit, but, but I want to begin with what is the Bible. Okay, so first of all, this Bible, it looks like a book, doesn't it? We can all agree it has pages and binding and things like that. But what if I told you that this is not a book? It's actually a library of books. And so if, if you don't know this, the, the Bible is actually 66 different books that have been collected and bound uh, together. You can go to the next slide, please. That it, it is a, uh, written by give or take 40 authors. I say give or take because some of the books, we don't know who the author is. And so uh, there, there's about 40 different authors, and it's written over 1,500 years, over a 1,000 years of authors who have been putting together this book. And so what you have uh, just on the surface, and this is, this is something that everybody agrees about the Bible. Um, it, is, it is a historically valuable piece of library, historically valuable piece of literature, just because it dates back so long. Like who here has a book on their, on their bookshelf somewhere that is over a 1,000 years old? Like none of us, except the Bible, right? It is an ancient and old uh, piece of literature, pieces of literature, um, written by 40 plus authors, and it's 66 different books. Uh, in this one uh, copy, in these 66 books, uh, it covers countless different cultures, um, ethnicities, socioeconomic, different people are in power in the world. You have, uh, you have, it's written by uh, uh, prophets and farmers and, and poets and songwriters. It's written by military uh, uh, people. It's written by kings. It's it, all of these authors come from completely different sources. It has totally different genres all the way through. It's not it's not just one piece of of, of narrative, but in this is is poetry and legal writing. In this is 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 narrative, but also like apocalyptic, like future stuff. There's song in it. There's 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 beauty. There's wisdom literature. Just meant to you read the one verse and it it grows in your knowledge. 
But you would think, you know, after 1,500 years of authors writing from beginning to end, 40 plus different authors with all of these different cultures and all of these different things, the argument then is, well, you can't really trust the Bible because there's all these like factual errors. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm going to tell you, take, take my word for it. We can, if you want to argue with me later, I would, I would welcome it because I'd like to be corrected on this. But I've, I've been studying the Bible. I, I went to college to study the thing. I, I know of zero factual errors and zero contradictions in the entire thing, which is by itself a miracle. You get 40 different people together writing over the course of over a thousand years, and you would think that one of them would want to change the story at some point. One of them would want to change the name of God. Uh, they would want to remember, like, oh, it wasn't Israel. It was, it was, uh, it was in Texas that it happened, you know? Uh, the, and you're laughing, but there's actually someone who tried to do that. They, it's called the, go, go look this up, it's called the Cotton Patch Bible, um, and he tried, to, he tried to translate the Bible to be completely in southern Georgia, and so they're, like, traveling across Savannah. They cross, like, the Mississippi River instead of the Nile, all kind of stuff, um, instead of the the Red Sea. Um, and so uh, I got off track because you laughed at me. There are, uh, in, in this book, uh, I, I know of zero times where the Bible says one thing on one side and contradicts itself on another side. There are just zero contradictions. Um, and, and of, of like when a name of a place is brought up, when, when there's a, a name of a people group and there would be like, oh, that's, there's no way that those people did that. There's no way. And then, and then like archaeology will prove it later. I know of no factual errors that have been discovered in this Bible at all. And so what you're left with is at the, at the end, well, it's, let's talk about one more thing. Of the 66 books, um, there's also another collection of books called the Apocrypha. And so uh, if you grew up Catholic or if you have a Catholic background, you may be asking, like, hey, Jesse, my Bible has like 75 books, 78 books or so. Like, why is that? And so the Apocrypha, uh, or also uh, sometimes called the Deuterocanonical books, which is, if you're ever on Jeopardy, just remember that word, the Deuterocanonical books. Um, these are books that were written uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, there's about a 400-year period that all of these books and some like ends of books and there's like another psalm added were, were written during that time. And uh, Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox Christians believe that these are inspired documents as well. And so they add them to their copy of the Bible. Uh, Protestants and, and other uh, Christian sects say, I, I think that those are historically valuable, but I don't think that they're inspired. And so they don't add them in the Bible, but they will, they'll refer to it uh, to know what was going going on uh, in the time of Jesus. So that's where the Apocrypha comes from. And so what, what you're left with is this, is 100% of people in the world look at the Bible and they have to admit it is historically valuable. It's helpful in knowing what the cultures of humanity were like in the ancient Near East, how, how Judaism spread from Egypt into uh, Palestine and to Israel. Uh, it's helpful in understanding how Christianity spread from a small group of people across the entire world. How did that happen? And so from just the historical and literary rich text, this is an incredibly valuable book. But here's the kicker, is that on top of that, on top of all of humanity having to agree that uh, are people like myself and many of you Christians that say it's not only historically valuable, it's actually inspired by God himself. This, this group of 66 books, uh, this, this group of 40 authors, this group of over a thousand years of writing, God himself inspired that for the purpose of you and I to know about his character, about his nature, about what he expects of us. Imagine just a second, um, your job is to figure out who God is and what God is about, and he never reveals himself to it. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about it. And he says, that's like an ant looking up and seeing the heel of a human being like walk by. And he's like, oh, I think I, think I know what he does for a living. It, it would be impossible for the ant to know what's in your purse, what's in your wallet. In so much as the ant is so far away from the man who's walking by, so are we away from God. If God did not set out what, what theologians call special revelation, the revelation of God of who he is in his nature, you and I would be walking blindly into a world not knowing who God is or or what he's about. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This idea that, that this word is sharp enough to go between, I don't know where the joint and the marrow meet, right? I don't, I don't know how, how thin of a line. What's the difference between the soul and the spirit? I don't know, but the word of God is sharp enough to cut right between that. And it adds that it's discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, so for those who would argue that this Bible uh, is just used to keep you know, people in power, Christians in power, some nonsense like that, Constantine wanted that. The authors of the Bible said it's actually intended to show you who you are. It cuts through the intentions of your own heart to show you who you are. Uh, before, before I uh, was, was uh, here at Carpenter's Way, I worked in social work, as many of you know. And uh, for the first year or two, um, I, would, I would go into homes and I would see something and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I think that's against the rules. I don't, I don't know. And there's all kind of weird rules in foster care. I don't know if you know this. Like uh, uh, your dog has to have a rabies shot, but your horse doesn't. Who knew? You know, I, I didn't know that. Horses don't need rabies shots. I don't even know if a horse can get rabies, but a horse with rabies is the most terrifying thing I could think of right now as I'm making this illustration. Uh, and, and I would constantly, frequently go into a home and I would say, I don't know what the rule is there. Let me go ask somebody. And I would go and ask him or her. Uh, and they would say, oh, the rule is this. And then like uh, three weeks later, I would be told the exact opposite. I'd be told, no, the rule isn't A, it's actually B. Don't you know that? We've always said B. It's like, oh, I thought it was A last week. And then I would, a little while later, it's like, no, it's really A. And I found myself, because I'm constantly going and asking people, what is the rule here? And all the social workers are just like, no, it's this, no, it's this. Of course it's this. And then one day, I was like, well, where do you get these rules from? And there's a book uh, called The Minimum Standards of Child Placing Agencies. It's a riveting read. You would love it. It's about 700 pages of every rule you could think of about your swimming pool and your dogs and smoke detectors and training. And I I just sat down one day and I went and looked up in the minimum standards of child placing agencies what the rule was. Was it A or was it B? And it turns out it was definitely A and it was definitely not B. It was, it was very easy to see and I became addicted to knowing the rules. I love to know the rules to everything. That's why my family doesn't play Monopoly and other board games with me because I want to follow the rules and I want to know as much as I can about it because, because out here in the world, I can ask you what the right move is here and you can tell me your opinion and you can tell it with such authority and such like, I know that this is the right way to go. And then I ask your friend next to you and he says the exact opposite with the same amount of certainty. But if I were to step away as the author of Hebrews would suggest, and I would just open this thing and I would look at it, I would try to read something that relates to my question. I find that God usually has a very clear and distinct, yes, do this, no, Jesse, you don't want to do that. That's not my way. 
Um, it's very helpful to know that this was intended to cut right through all of the lies, cut right through the marrow, the difference between spirit and soul, and cut through the intentions of my own heart. You know, I don't know if you're like this, but I have the ability to lie to myself and convince myself that I have my own best interest in mind, and I'm actually I'm here to serve you. I'm really wanting to make you better, and all the while I'm lying to myself because what I'm trying to do is make my life more comfortable or, or change something. But when I read the Word of God, it shows me who I am. So this is what the Bible is. Let's, let's ask a, and answer a few questions. I'm going to get a little historically nerdy. Uh, for those of you who enjoy it, hang on to your seat, uh, and, and your spouse will wake you up in a moment if, uh, if you're going to fall asleep during this. I want to ask the questions like, can I trust the Bible? Can you trust this thing? Is, is this thing even historically accurate at all? It, are, the, are there stories? Like, was there really a temple where they said there was a temple? Did Jesus really walk from Galilee to Jerusalem? That seems like a long walk. How did he do it? Uh, did David really fight on these hills? Was there ever really a David? There's, there's a ton of questions. Uh, coming out of uh, uh, the 19th century, uh, there was this move, uh, it's called uh, higher criticism, higher textual criticism, if you want to Google this later to fact check me. But there was this move to uh, say, I'm not going to trust anything I can't prove in this book. So I want science, I want history, I want archaeology, I want some 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 uh, source of material outside of the Bible to verify that that person or that place or that thing existed. Uh, and, and if it doesn't, I'm not going to believe that. It's coming out of the 19th century. It's also coming out of a time where archaeology didn't really exist that well. And so they would say, like, I don't even know if King David existed. I don't know if there was ever a Solomon. I don't know if there were ever two kingdoms because we can't find anything. But archaeology over time caught up with the Bible and began proving more and more of it. And so I want to look at a few archaeological digs. Uh, the first is, uh, this uh, is called the Tel Dan inscription. It's a rock. Uh, it's about yay big. It's got written on it. I don't know what language that is. It looks kind of the Hebrew cuneiform, something like that. This is the Tel Dan inscription. Uh, it was discovered in 1993, which wasn't that long ago, although uh, it's what is that now? 30 years? Golly, it was long ago. Feels like it was last week. Uh, it was discovered in 1993, and it dates all the way back to the 9th century BC. Before they found this, uh, the, the talking points were, I don't believe that there was ever uh, a King David, King Solomon, all of the northern southern kingdom. In fact, all of Judaism just really dates back to uh, Babylonian exile, which is hundreds of years later. There, there was none of that. And then they found the Tel Dan inscription, and this is a piece of uh, what's called a stella, I think it is. Um, of, of uh, Armenian king talking about his victory over the northern kingdom he called Judah and the southern kingdom he called the house of David. That's what's inscribed on here is someone bragging about the war that he won. Uh, and it point, uh, again, it dates back to the ninth century, which would be a hundred years after King David was alive. This is, this is like within his, this is within like, uh, who, who's the king after Solomon? Uh, I feel like the pastor should know that. Anyway, whoever the king after Sol Solomon's son, this is during his lifetime because the kingdom splits immediately after Solomon into a north and south. And this guy right here is bragging about winning a war against both the north and the south. It's outside of scripture and they found it, uh, in the nineties. The, the next one is called the house of Yahweh Ostrakhan. 
This is that. This is, this is about the size of a business card, uh, if, you, if you can think of that. It's very small. It's a piece of pottery with writing on it, and it's basically a receipt that they found uh, on the border of Israel. Uh, and it's a receipt talking about the house of Yahweh. It's, the quote is written in there. It has a man's name on it. I can't remember his name. Uh, nobody knows who he is. And it's talking about like, hey, I traded you this many, I don't know, grains of something with this many pounds of chickens. It's like, it's like a receipt for a transaction between people going to the temple, uh, and it references the place that they go to as the house of Yahweh, which was built by Solomon. This dates back to within 130 years of Solomon building the temple in Scripture. It dates way, way back. and like It has the name Yahweh on it. There were people arguing as to whether or not people even worship Yahweh, but this dates back uh, to that. This is another good one. This is King David's palace, this next one. Uh, this is uh, outside uh, of the edge of Jerusalem. They found these these uh, walls. This is where King David lived, which is just wild to me to think about. Like uh, There's a time where when we're going through the, the story of David uh, around 2 Samuel, uh, he had a house built uh, and he walked here. Like, it, it, like one of these squares is King David's bedroom, which is wild to me. Um, in fact, uh, not I haven't fact-checked this, but if I'm thinking of this right, he would have seen Bathsheba from the roof of one of these corners of this building right here. Um, when they found this uh, site, uh, it was very odd because it's in the middle of Israel. Uh, it's on the edge of Jerusalem. Uh, but it's not of the same architecture of everything else around it. They looked at it and said, this is, this is Phoenician. This is Phoenician architecture. And so therefore it, it must have been from somebody else. It can't have been David. Uh, they're, they're arguing. And then, and then someone just opened up their Bible and, uh, they read 2 Samuel 5.11. Read this with me. 2 Samuel 5.11. And Haram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. The reason why it's a design different than anybody else is because somebody from a different state, a different country, came in and brought Phoenician design and built it, and it's recorded that way in Scripture. So as as they were arguing as to whether or not this could really be Israeli architecture, it's like, no, it's not, because... David had a buddy who had Phoenician design in mind and came and built for him a house. That whole story uh, was recorded in the New York Times uh, in August uh, of 2005. If you want to go Google that, like they, there are people arguing like, okay, where, where's this house from? I don't know. And then they quote 2 Samuel. It's, it's wild to me. And my favorite is this. This is my last archaeological thing, and then you can wake up your spouses. This is the John Ryland's Papyrus number 52. John Ryland's Papyrus 52. It's a very small scrap of paper. You can see a little small scrap of papyrus. Uh, it has written on it on one side, uh, John 18 verses 31 and 33, and on the other side, John 18 verses 37 and 38. It was found in Egypt in the 1920s, uh, along with a ton of other stuff. The guy who found it died shortly after, so he never translated it. And so it ended up in an archive, right? In the 1920s, it ends up in an archive, and it's not translated for another 15 years. So somebody's like digging through and finds this piece of papyrus in, in the, in 1935 and translates it. It's like, hey, this has the book of John on it. We found this in Egypt. It dates back to, let me see real quick. Uh, I don't have it on that screen to 130, AD 130. Uh, it dates back to, uh, let, let, me, let me set this up real quick. Uh, in, in the 1920s and 30s, we're between two world wars. You, you remember that from history? 
Um, and, and coming out of the 19th century, there was a philosophical movement called relativism, that truth is relative. What is truth? You can have your truth and have my truth. And you guys know this because it, it, it's still intact. It, it grew during the 19th century into the 20th century. And it was the argument for that began both World War I and it's the same logic that Hitler would use in World War II to say, I can conquer whatever I want because it's my truth and yeah, I, can, I can do this, right? Between those two wars, they find this papyrus that has John 18 written on both sides of it. And I just want to, I just want to look at, at what it says. If, if we can look at John 18 real quick. It says, uh, this is, if you know this part of John, this is, Jesus has been arrested. Uh, he's now standing before Pilate. He's getting ready to, to, uh, uh, have his, his charges read against him. Pilate is trying to figure out if he's going to crucify him or not. Uh, and, and here's, here's what, it says in that papyrus, it says, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We can't, we can't kill anyone. And it says, uh, it, it, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? The papyrus cuts off right there. There are a few verses that we have in our Bible, but you can see that the thing was torn. Flip it over and here's, here's how it finishes. It says, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. It's, it's like, it's so bizarre to me that during a time where the entire world is arguing about what is truth, they find a papyrus that has Jesus being asked the question, really, what is truth? It's almost like God is just like, I hid this papyrus in Egypt for 2000 years so that you can find it before Hitler, you know, like if you would just listen to the word of God, we could have stopped this guy. Uh, it is wild to me how, how Timely that was. This dates back to 130, AD 130, which is within the lifetime uh, of people who would have been there for John, who wrote it. Like people who were there when this was passed around in Egypt knew John by name. So here, here's what you're left with, just from archaeology. The oldest document that we currently have of the New Testament, the oldest document, is that papyrus. It dates back to 130 AD. John would have written this in about mm, 60, 65, AD 60, AD 65. And so it's only uh, 130 or uh, 70 years, excuse me, 70 years from the original. Now, what we have, the oldest, is about 70 years from the original. Now, let's compare this to other historical things that you may have heard in class at some point. Uh, Homer's Odyssey and Iliad, you guys know Homer, right? He had like a Cyclops story and there's like a, a boat. There's a whole thing. Nobody argues as to whether or not Homer wrote that. Everybody's like, yeah, Homer lived. He wrote this. He was a poet. The oldest that we have uh, dates back to about 250 BC and it was written in 700 BC. And so that puts it 450 years apart from the original, 450 years. But everybody agrees. Yeah, Homer, Homer read that. We know Homer. You guys know who Plato is, right? 
Plato, big philosopher, big big head guy, kind of a nerd. Uh, he uh, he wrote his stuff uh, in about 380 BC, but the oldest fragment of his writings dates to AD 895, which is 1200 more than 1200 years after he wrote it. And everybody agrees. Yes, Plato lived. Plato wrote those things. He had some great things to talk about the Greek world. But it's over a thousand years later before we have the the first recorded document. When we talk about like archaeological proof of the New Testament, we've got stuff within the lifetime of the of the disciples' disciples. John, John was 40 years, 70 years away from the writing of, of that one piece. Let's talk about a couple of other things uh, outside of archaeology, just some reasons to trust the Bible. Um, the first is this, is that uh, the, the Bible and people in the Bible are extremely self-deprecating. They, they are very honest about their warts and their flaws. Uh, just think of all the, the, the logic that goes something like this. You shouldn't trust the Bible because it was written centuries after, uh, you know, these people lived, if they ever did live. And they wrote these stories. They're just myths and legends. Moses, King David, it's all myths and legends meant to keep Christianity in power, Judaism in power. That's kind of how the story goes. Uh, if that were true, you would want, I think, you would want uh, to really make these heroes look really good, wouldn't you? Right? You would want, you wouldn't want the heroes of the Bible to, to, to be awesome and good examples of what it's like to follow God, but that's not what you see in scripture. Uh, Moses, uh, had an anger problem, uh, so much so that he got mad at a rock. He beat it with a stick and he's not allowed to enter the promised land. You would kind of want the hero of Judaism to be a, a stalwart of faith so that he can enter the promised land. Noah, uh, he was a drunk. Uh, he, he finally lands on dry land, uh, gets hammered drunk, uh, passes out, forgets his clothes, so he passes out naked, and his kids make fun of him for, for being nude. And like that's that's Noah. That's not a good example of humanity, and yet it's left in scripture. King David, the man who's written as uh, a man after God's own heart, he he looks he, he has he has several wives at one point, but then he looks at another man's wife, he steals her, she gets pregnant, and to hide what he's done, he has her husband murdered on the battlefield, and yet they leave the story in. If it was all a power move, David would just be like, hey, listen, just get rid of that ugly bit right there. Um, Peter, uh, who uh, I believe, I believe uh, Roman Catholics hold Peter as the first uh, pope, uh, he's also recorded in Scripture as the as the one of the first leaders of the church. He's a loudmouth. Uh, he constantly steps on his toes. At one point, Jesus looks at him and calls him Satan to his face. You, if, if Peter was in a power move and he wanted to whitewash Scripture, he had all the power to do so. Hey, can he get rid of that? You know that time where I denied Jesus three times? Can you get rid of that? You know that time where I walked on water, but then I forgot to look what I was looking at and I started to sink? Get rid of the sinking. Just leave the walking on water part. But they didn't. They left all of the ugly bits in there because it's reliable. Um, uh, there's a, a spot where Peter and Paul are arguing with each other, saying that one, both of them have bad intentions over the other one. They're just trying to manipulate people. And then later in the Bible, they, uh, they, they patch it up. They, they work it out. Uh, Jesus had uh, several brothers and sisters, uh, but but two of them were were Christians. Uh, later, uh, he has a brother named James and a brother named Jude. They both have books of the Bible. At the at the end of our Bible, there's a the book of James and the book of Jude. Those were written by Jesus's half brothers. While Jesus was alive, none of his brothers followed him. 
None of his brothers believed that he was the Messiah. None of his brothers uh, you know, wanted to, to associate with him. In fact, you have in Scripture times where his family, Jesus' family, is like, hey, why don't you stop saying the things that you're saying because it's a little, eh, you know, people might want to hurt you for that. Uh, and they dismiss their brother. But after the resurrection, they become followers of Jesus. Why, why, wouldn't they want to just like, yeah, I knew who he was when we were kids. We were playing like toys and like he made this toy float over my wall. It's like crazy. He did some Jesus thing. He turned water to Kool-Aid. It was so cool. Wouldn't you want, if you were just like writing whatever you want to keep yourself in power, wouldn't you just go back and take care of some of that stuff? They didn't. It's all there. All of the flaws, all of the warts of these people, these heroes. And we should be thankful that it's there because I don't know about you, but I relate to the flaws of people more than I do the strengths, right? When I read a flaw of Peter, when I read a flaw of James, when I read a flaw of David, I am encouraged because that means that there's hope for me if people can look that good, uh, uh, look that bad, and still be followers of God. uh, That works out. Uh, The second uh, thing that you should know is uh, in in AD 70, uh, about 40 years after Jesus is crucified, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. This is historical fact. You can, you can find this on Wikipedia. You can go to Encyclopedia Britannica. AD 70, uh, the temple is destroyed by, uh, Vespasian, who was, uh, t- uh, emperor at the time. Um, and it's interesting to, to say that because, uh, that moment doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. There's this thing that happens, the destruction of the temple. Jews at the destruction of the temple can no longer make sacrifices to God at the temple. They can no longer have a high priest go into the Holy of Holies. All of the things of the law that revolve around the temple, they can no longer be a part of because the temple was destroyed in AD 70. If the argument is, um, it's written centuries later to prove a point, wouldn't you think that like the people who are trying to prove the point would add the fact that the temple was destroyed somewhere in there to make the point that Judaism can't follow itself? But it's not there. Why is it that the temple being destroyed doesn't show up in Scripture? I only know of one possible explanation. That's that's it didn't happen yet. The authors were writing at a time that it hadn't happened yet. Look at this in uh, Luke, the the passage I told you to turn to, Luke twenty one. Jesus actually prophesies that the temple will be destroyed, and he gets it with shocking accuracy. Like it's not just like one day the temple's going to be destroyed and you'll know. Like he talks about like what's happening and mom's crying and stuff, and it happened just like he said it. Uh, here, here's the prophecy. It says, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not, uh, will there not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place and the end will not be at once. Fast forward to verse 20 when he gets back to talking about the temple. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles 
Gentiles are fulfilled. And within, within 40 years of him saying this phrase, it happened exactly as he said. Rome uh, put Jerusalem under siege. It lasted for four years. During the last year, uh, they had surrounded Jerusalem completely, and you couldn't, you couldn't enter or leave without Romans letting you. The rebels were inside Jerusalem, and they were ready to fight tooth and nail, but Passover is beginning. And so the, emperor, excuse me, the general has this great military decision, and he decides, I'm going to let Passover happen. And he lets all of the visitors who would be traveling to Jerusalem enter Jerusalem. Jerusalem swells up three, four, five times its normal amount because it's Passover season and, and the general let them in. And what he does by doing that is that he depletes them of food and water because you can't keep that many people alive. And whenever the, the general decides to conquer Jerusalem, he walks into the temple and he destroys the temple stone by stone. They knock it off of the cliffs that it's on. And to this day, if you go to Israel, there are giant rocks that are cut, laying exactly where they were when they fell, because they haven't moved them yet. Uh, he walks into the temple. He takes the Holy of Holies. He takes all of the, there's, a, there's a, uh, an arch. It's called the Arch of Triumph, uh, Arch of something to that effect. Um, and it has a picture of the menorah being led out of the temple because of this conquest. Um, if, if, I'm, if I'm backdating my stories, I'm going to want to prove that Jesus knew what he was talking about, right? If, if, the, if the logic is, I'm going to write this 100 years later, I'm going to show that Jesus, like every word that he said came to be, but the temple being destroyed never shows up in Scripture, does it? Here's the third thing. I'm going uh, to run out of time. Uh, I apologize. I got all nerdy on this. Uh, the third thing is this, is that the authors invite fact-checking. Um, I'm going to, if you want to take notes, I'll give you the passages you can look up. Uh, but all throughout scripture, it's written as if, hey, the people that you can talk to, go talk to them. Like they were there. They were eyewitnesses for it. Uh, I'm going to give you these passages if you want to write them down. Luke chapter one, uh, verses one through four. Luke says, hey, I'm writing this. I went and talked to some eyewitnesses. Uh, I'm, I'm investigating this on your behalf, Theophilus. If you go look at first Corinthians chapter 15, verses five through seven, uh, Paul says, hey, listen, there were hundreds of people people there, eyewitnesses, most of them are still alive. If you, if you want proof, just go call one of them. Go, go see them. Pick up your cell phone. I don't know why I said call. Uh, both Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 and First John 1, these people begin their story like, hey, take my word for it. I was an eyewitness. I knew Jesus. I knew what he was talking about. I was there for it. The, the authors, they invite us to check this. And, and it would only take one person to show up and be like, hey, I'm one of those 500 people that Paul was talking about. I have no idea what he's talking about. That dude, he's making some stuff up. That guy, he, he didn't know anything. And yet, and yet he, he held, nobody, nobody showed up. Nobody, nobody spoke up and said, no, what he's saying is a lie about me. Everybody's like, yep, that's what it was. I saw Jesus. I saw the resurrected Jesus. The eyewitnesses uh, bore that out. Okay, uh, for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to be uh, quick in closing, but uh, two things I want to say is uh, I find the Bible to be incredibly uh, helpful, not just from a teaching perspective, not just a, like a historically knowledge perspective, but there's a reason to trust uh, the reasons that I gave and more uh, to trust that this is a valid document with hope and a message for you. And so the question that, that you may be asking, okay, I'm, I'm now on the hunt for a Bible. Uh, what Bible should I pick? What, what, which one should I, I get? 
Um, the answer is really simple. The, the Bible you should get is the one you're going to read, if, if I could just be honest with you. Uh, I can give you a lot of tips as to which ones are easier to read and which ones aren't. But if, if you have a Bible that your great-great-great-grandmother gave you and it's beautiful and uh, it, it's a special heirloom of your family, praise God that you have that much heritage of faith in your family. But if, if you're not reading it, it's not doing anything for you other than helping you remember your great-grandparents. Um, the Bible that you need is the one that you can read. If When you leave, uh, if you look in the outpost, there's one of these cards that says, which Bible is right for me? Um, on this side, it shows you the different translations that are available. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you, I teach out of the ESV. Uh, most of the people who teach on the stage teach out of the ESV. The students teach out of the ESV. And down the hall, they teach out of the NIV for the children because it's easier to read. If you look here, you can see like how those translations came to be. Uh, and on the back of the card is some questions you might be asking. You say, hey, listen, I really want to get into Greek. I want to I study word for word kind of stuff. Then it tells you kind of what to look for in a Bible. Uh, you might be on the other side. You're like, listen, I don't have a lot of time. I just want to read like in as, as normal English as possible. It has an answer for that. Uh, a one, Or you can just come talk to me. Okay. So which Bible is right for me? Uh, how should I study the Bible? This is, this is one of the things that, that people become overwhelmed with. Um, many times when I'm talking to young Christians, uh, it's okay. I want to read the Bible, but as soon as I open it up, I'm, I, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. There's all these like letters, like I'll read a verse and it has like the letter A next to it. And I look at the A and it tells me to turn to this verse. And now I'm flipping back and forth. And, uh, I, I just want to say, uh, it, it takes time to, to learn scripture. Uh, first Peter, uh, two says this. It says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into your salvation. If, if you're new to your faith, um, you need, you need, you need someone like helping you with it. You know what I'm saying? Like get into a group of people and ask questions that, that you can, you can trust. Uh, um, Hebrews five says this. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Everybody in here knows a time where someone used the Bible to do an evil, wicked thing. Yes? Can we agree? Uh, Hitler used the Bible. Um, there's a, a guy in Russia right now using the Bible to justify the war that's going on right now. Um, slavery, slaveholders used the Bible and they used it, twisted it to try to prove that slavery was good. And all these people were doing evil things. It's possible to take the Bible out of context. Here, here's how you study the Bible. Um, you, you, you start slow and you grow in it. There's um, a card out there on how to study the Bible real quick. Uh, I'll tell you the steps that I would encourage you to do. Um, just, just like the authors had this idea of, of eating milk or solid food, um, take the bite that you can, you can take. So the, the first thing is, in taking the bite is, is just read the passage straight through. Ignore, ignore the footnotes, uh, because people added those later to be helpful. Ignore your study Bible notes at the bottom. People added those to, to be helpful. Um, just read just an entire chapter of John or read, read an entire paragraph. Don't, not just one verse, but take the whole bite and just, what is he saying right here? What is the point? Why, why did Paul make that argument? What, what, what is, what is the point that he's trying to get? And then, and then after you chew, after you bite it, chew it, uh, think about it, talk to some people, 
you can chew by uh, going to a, 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 hearing a sermon about a passage. If you Google sermons, you can find YouTube and, and podcasts. Uh, there are a ton of apps and podcast things to help you chew on what you're reading on the back of this card or some that you can, you can grab. If you want to get into the Greek and you want to get into the original language, there's a website I would encourage you to go to. Look up that verse in the original language. Click that word and it'll tell you what the Greek word is and what that word means in Greek. And you can see the other times it was used in the Bible. If you want, if you're like, hey, I would love to have like classes. I would love to go to seminary, but I just, I don't have that kind of time. Then I would tell you to download the Bible Project app. Uh, and it basically, if anybody ever do like Duolingo, uh, some of those classes on your on your phone, you know you know that, that speed where you start small and it's like, I'm a level one, I'm a level two. Bible Project takes basically seminary and it puts it in like that duolingo format and you can take level one, level two, what is the law? Level one, two, level three, the law. And you can grow your knowledge base on the law. Um, or you can just go find amazing preachers. There's are great preachers online. Go find them. Here's a, uh, some that I would trust. I would recommend if you want to listen to podcasts or YouTubes or different sermons, then do that. But uh, take, take a bite, learn how to chew it right. Just, okay. Okay, I, I see that. I see that point. How does that point? And then after you've done that, after you've done the work, then you, you can swallow it. You can bring it into yourself. Like, how do I apply that to where I'm at right now? Uh, what are the parallels between how Peter denied Jesus and how I find myself having a hard conversation with my friends about Jesus? What are the parallels between uh, Paul talking about the freedom I have in Christ and me feeling like I have all these rules over my head and like Jesus, like there is no freedom in Christ. Why is it that he can say this and I don't feel this? When you start to chew on it, then you can start to apply it and see how those things line up. That's how you grow moving from infancy to maturity. Let me close with two, two closing thoughts and I'll let you go. Uh, the first is a, a quote from St. Augustine. Uh, he, he, he lived, uh, around, uh, off of memory. Somebody can fact check me later. I think it's like 8,500, 8,600, something like that. And he said, the Holy scriptures are letters from home. And it's such a beautiful image of what he thought about, about God. The idea that God inspired this book, uh, just like the song we sang earlier is that heaven is my home. I'm not, this isn't my home. These are our letters from home about what home is like. Uh, we're, we're in the future now. Like we're, you know, we can just email each other and text each other, but rewind back to like maybe your grandparents being in war and they get a letter from home about what Aunt Sally's doing and like from their wife, from their spouse, that hope that they would feel like they, they would, they would grab that letter. And you know that our grandparents would just read that every night, right before they went to bed, they'd read the same letter over and over again because they found hope and they found meaning. It connected them back to their people. They would collect all and they would would come back home to America with a box full of those letters. Like these are the letters that sustain me. And St. Augustine, as he thinks about scripture, he says, it's like letters from home that God is just, we should cherish this book of 66 books uh, because he tells us who we are and he tells us who our God is. And it reminds us that we're not built for this world. That's why we're so uncomfortable here. We're built for that world. We're built for who he's calling us to be. The second is this, is Francis Chan. He says, don't fall into the trap of studying the Bible without doing what it says. And I hate to tell you this, but I know so many churches and so many pastors that they're really smart about the Bible. And they could tell you the Greek and they can tell you the, where it came from. They, they could be more specific about the history than I was today, just off the top of their dome. They know about the Bible. But when you look at their life and the lives of their people, they do not love others. They do not forgive. 
that do not take the message of the gospel and, and build that into their life, uh, they, they know a lot about the Bible, but they don't know how to live it out, and it's a trap. Francis Chan is right. I would encourage you to, to grow and study the Bible. If these can be helpful to you, they're in the outpost. Let me pray, and then we'll watch the queue together. Father, um, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that there's uh, sufficient reason uh, to trust uh, that, that it's accurate, uh, to believe uh, the, the history of it. Uh, but maybe we take a step further and just see ourselves in it. Um, Lord, you, you, your word says that, that it's like holding a mirror up to our face. Father, help us, help us to see what we're really like uh, behind our own masks. Uh, help us not believe our own news and not, not believe our own lies. Um, but Lord, that you would, you would reveal ourselves to ourselves, um, but also you would reveal your, you to us and, uh, we would fall in love with you. Uh, we'd find hope in your name. We would see in you, uh, a father who is forgiving and welcoming as the prodigal son. Um, you, you, you will restore us. Uh, thank you for that message and thank you for not leaving us in our ignorance. Help us to grow in maturity, not just in your word, but in maturity of, of being good followers of you and living in a world uh, in a way that reflects you better. Uh, Lord, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.